I'm Robert Sheehan, and this is Wild Stories, an artistic celebration and exploration of the work and life of Oscar Wilde through his fairy tales, The Happy Prince, and other stories. His pain. Surely love is a wonderful thing. It is more precious than emeralds and dearer than fine opals. Pearls and pomegranates cannot buy it. They said to each other. Then the spring came, and all over the country there were little blossoms and little birds. Only in the garden of the selfish giant, it was still winter. The birds did not care to sing. Said the poor prince, you must go away to Egypt. I will stay with you always, said the swallow. And he slept at the prince's season. Real friends should have everything in common, the miller used to say. And little hands nodded and smiled and felt very proud of having a friend. Now fairy tales, some might imagine, are meant to have and so they lived happily ever after endings. But not so with Oscar Wilde, who said he wrote these stories as much for adults as children. If he believed that art was important for art's sake, it wasn't that you wrote a story to tell a child how to behave in particular circumstances. It was that you picked a form like the fairy tale that could operate on different levels, that people could bring their own experience to, and that could be interpreted in different ways. So I think it was the freedom of the fairy tale that attracted him. And he knew that there could be a market for them as well. In our five-part series, Wild Stories, so far we've heard The Happy Prince, where the promise of happiness for the prince comes only in paradise, and The Devoted Friend, where poor Hans dies trying to meet the greedy demands of the miller. For Wild, these are stories to disturb us, to jar us awake, as much as to amuse us. So he was a father, he was engaging with children's literature, he was also interested in the way fairy tales had become dismissed as essentially for children. Whereas the emergence of the fairy tale in the late 18th century really saw the fairy tale as part of adult culture, a part of the salons of Europe and France particularly. In Wild Stories, we're exploring Oscar Wilde through the prism of his first collection. And working with composer Michael Gallen, artist Felicity Clear, actors Lauren Coe and Brian Gleeson on a creative reimagining of Wilde. You can catch up on the first two episodes, read the stories and experience the visual art all on the project's website, wildstories.ie. In this episode, we meet the satirical, dark humour of The Remarkable Rocket. A story of arrogance and ignorance, of vanity and self-delusion. It's a story of a rocket, a pompous character, who, like the city councillors in The Happy Prince, or the miller in The Devoted Friend, sees the world through the mirror of his own reflection. I like hearing myself talk, the rocket says. I often have long conversations by myself, and I'm so clever, I, I don't understand a single word of what I am saying. The story cuts at the society Oscar Wilde himself entertained, but like his later plays, he puts the knife in with a laugh. 
We'll talk more about the story and how it fits into Wilde's work, and hear the extraordinary music Michael Gallen has created inspired by the story. But first, let's hear Oscar Wilde himself in The Remarkable Rocket, read for us by Brian Gleeson. The Remarkable Rocket by Oscar Wilde. The king's son was going to be married, so there were general rejoicings. He had waited a whole year for his bride, and at last she had arrived. She was a Russian princess, and had driven all the way from Finland in a sledge drawn by six reindeer. The sledge was shaped like a great golden swan, and between the swan's wings lay the little princess herself. Her long ermine coat reached right down to her feet. On her head was a tiny cap of silver tissue, and she was as pale as the snow palace in which she had always lived. So pale was she that as she drove through the streets, all the people wondered. She is like a white rose, they cried, and they threw down flowers on her from the balconies. At the gate of the castle, the prince was waiting to receive her. He had dreamy violet eyes, and his hair was like fine gold. When he saw her, he sank upon one knee and kissed her hand. Your picture was beautiful, he murmured. But you were more beautiful than your picture. And the little princess blushed. She was like a white rose before, said a young page to his neighbour. But she is like a red rose now. And the whole court was delighted. For the next three days, everybody went about saying, White rose, red rose, red rose, white rose and the king gave orders that the page's salary was to be doubled. As he received no salary at all, this was not of much use to him, but it was considered a great honour and was duly published in the court gazette. When the three days were over, the marriage was celebrated. It was a magnificent ceremony, and the bride and bridegroom walked hand in hand under a canopy of purple velvet embroidered with little pearls. Then there was a state banquet which lasted for five hours. The prince and princess sat at the top of the great hall and drank out of a cup of clear crystal. Only true lovers could drink out of this cup, for if false lips touched it, it grew grey and dull and cloudy. It's quite clear that they love each other, said the little page, as clear as crystal, and the king doubled his salary a second time. What an honour, cried all the courtiers. After the banquet, there was to be a ball. The bride and bridegroom were to dance the rose dance together, and the king had promised to play the flute. He played very badly, but no one had ever dared to tell him so, because he was the king. Indeed, he knew only two airs, and was never quite certain which one he was playing. But it made no matter, for, whatever he did, everybody cried out, Charming! Charming! The last item on the programme was a grand display of fireworks to be let off exactly at midnight. The little princess had never seen a firework in her life, so the king had given orders that the royal pyrotechnist should be in attendance on the day of her marriage. What are fireworks like? She had asked the prince one morning as she was walking on the terrace. They are like the Aurora Borealis, said the king, who always answered questions that were addressed to other people, only much more natural. 
I prefer them to stars myself, as you always know when they are going to appear, and they are as delightful as my own flute playing. You must certainly see them. So at the end of the king's garden, a great stand had been set up, and as soon as the royal pyrotechnist had put everything in its proper place, the fireworks began to talk to each other. The world is certainly very beautiful, cried a little squib. Just look at those yellow tulips. Why, if they were real crackers, they could not be lovelier. I am very glad I have travelled. Travel improves the mind wonderfully and does away with all one's prejudices. The king's garden is not the world, you foolish squib, said a big Roman candle. The world is an enormous place, and it would take you three days to see it thoroughly. Any place you love is the world to you, exclaimed a pensive Catherine Wheel, who had been attached to an old deal box in early life and prided herself on her broken heart. But love is not fashionable anymore. The poets have killed it. They wrote so much about it that nobody believed them, and I am not surprised. True love suffers and is silent. I remember myself once, but it is no matter now. Romance is a thing of the past. Nonsense, said the Roman candle. Romance never dies. It is like the moon and lives forever. The bride and bridegroom, for instance, love each other very dearly. I heard all about them this morning from a brown paper cartridge who happened to be staying in the same drawer as myself and knew the latest court news. But the Catherine wheel shook her head. Romance is dead. Romance is dead. Romance is dead, she murmured. She was one of those people who think that if you say the same thing over and over a great many times, it becomes true in the end. Suddenly, a sharp, dry cough was heard and they all looked round. It came from a tall, supercilious-looking rocket who was tied to the end of a long stick. He always coughed before he made any observation so as to attract attention. Ahem, ahem, he said, and everybody listened except the poor Catherine Wheel, who was still shaking her head and murmuring, Romance is dead. Order, order, cried out a cracker. He was something of a politician and had always taken a prominent part in the local elections so he knew the proper parliamentary expressions to use. Quite dead, whispered the Catherine wheel, and she went off to sleep. As soon as there was perfect silence, the rocket coughed a third time and began. He spoke with a very slow, distinct voice, as if he was dictating his memoirs, and always looked over the shoulder of the person to whom he was talking. In fact, he had a most distinguished manner. How fortunate it is for the king's son, he remarked, that he is to be married on the very day in which I am to be let off. Really, if it had not been arranged beforehand, it could not have turned out better for him. But princes are always lucky. Dear me, said the little squib, I thought it was quite the other way, and that we were to be let off in the prince's honour. It may be so with you, he answered. Indeed, I have no doubt that it is, but with me it is different. I am a very remarkable rocket, and come of remarkable parents. My mother was the most celebrated Catherine Wheel of her day, and was renowned for her graceful dancing. When she made her great public appearance, she spun round nineteen times before she went out, and each time that she did so, she threw into the air seven pink stars. She was three feet and a half in diameter, 
and made of the very best gunpowder. My father was a rocket like myself and of French extraction. He flew so high that the people were afraid that he would never come down again. He did, though, for he was of a kindly disposition, and he made a most brilliant ascent in a shower of golden rain. The newspapers wrote about his performance in very flattering terms. Indeed, the Court Gazette called him a triumph of pyrotechnic art. Pyrotechnic, pyrotechnic, you mean, said a Bengal light. I know it is pyrotechnic, for I saw it written on my own canister. Well, I said pyrotechnic, answered the rocket, in a severe tone of voice, and the Bengal light felt so crushed that he began at once to bully the little squibs in order to show that he was still a person of some importance. I was saying, continued the rocket, I was saying, what was I saying? You were talking about yourself, replied the Roman candle. Of course, I knew I was discussing some interesting subject when I was so rudely interrupted. I hate rudeness and bad manners of every kind, for I am extremely sensitive. No one in the whole world is so sensitive as I am. I am quite sure of that. What is a sensitive person? said the cracker to the Roman candle. A person who, because he has corns himself, always treads on other people's toes, answered the Roman candle in a low whisper, and the cracker nearly exploded with laughter. Pray, what are you laughing at? inquired the rocket. I am not laughing. I am laughing because I am happy, replied the cracker. That is a very selfish reason, said the rocket angrily. What right have you to be happy? You should be thinking about others. In fact, you should be thinking about me. I am always thinking about myself, and I expect everybody else to do the same. That is what is called sympathy. It is a beautiful virtue, and I possess it in a high degree. Suppose, for instance, anything happened to me tonight. What a misfortune that would be for everyone. The prince and the princess would never be happy again. Their whole married life would be spoiled. And as for the king, I know he would not get over it. Really, when I begin to reflect on the importance of my position, I am almost moved to tears. If you want to give pleasure to others, cried the Roman candle, you would better keep yourself dry. Certainly, exclaimed the Bengal light, who was now in better spirits. That is only common sense. Common sense indeed, said the rocket indignantly. You forget that I am very uncommon and very remarkable. Why, anybody can have common sense, provided that they have no imagination. But I have imagination, for I never think of things as they really are. I always think of them as being quite different. As for keeping myself dry, there is evidently no one here who can at all appreciate an emotional nature. Fortunately for myself, I don't care. The only thing that sustains one through life is the consciousness of the immense inferiority of everybody else. And this is a feeling that I have always cultivated. But none of you have any hearts. Here you are, laughing and making merry, just as if the prince and princess had not just been married. Well, really, exclaimed a small fire balloon. Why not? It is a most joyful occasion, and when I soar up into the air, I intend to tell the stars all about it. 
You will see them twinkle when I talk to them about the pretty bride. Ah, what a trivial view of life, said the rocket. But it is only what I expected. There is nothing in you. Why, perhaps the prince and princess may go to live in a country where there is a deep river. And perhaps they may have only one son, a little fair-haired boy with violet eyes like the prince himself. And perhaps some day he may go out to walk with his nurse. And perhaps the nurse may go to sleep under a great elder tree. And perhaps the little boy may fall into the deep river and be drowned. What a terrible misfortune! Poor people to lose their only son. It is really too dreadful. I shall not get over it. But they have not lost their only son, said the Roman candle. No misfortune has happened to them at all. I never said they had, replied the rocket. I said that they might. If they had lost their only son, there would be no use in saying anything more about the matter. I hate people who cry over spilt milk. But when I think that they might lose their only son, I am certainly very much affected. You certainly are, cried the Bengal light. In fact, you are the most affected person I ever met. You are the rudest person I ever met, said the rocket. And you cannot understand my friendship for the prince. Why, you don't even know him, growled the Roman candle. I never said I knew him, answered the rocket. I dare say that if I knew him, I should not be his friend at all. It is a very dangerous thing to know one's friends. You had really better keep yourself dry, said the fire balloon. That is the important thing. Uh, very important for you, I have no doubt, answered the rocket. But I shall weep if I choose. And he actually burst into real tears, which flowed down his stick like raindrops, and nearly drowned two little beetles, who were just thinking of setting up house together, and were looking for a nice dry spot to live in. He must have a truly romantic nature, said the Catherine Wheel, for he weeps when there is nothing at all to weep about. And she heaved a deep sigh and thought about the deal box. But the Roman candle and the Bengal light were quite indignant and kept saying, Humbug! Humbug! at the top of their voices. They were extremely practical, and whenever they objected to anything, they called it humbug. Then the moon rose like a wonderful silver shield, and the stars began to shine, and a sound of music came from the palace. The prince and princess were leading the dance. They danced so beautifully that the tall white lilies peeped in at the window and watched them, and the great red poppies nodded their heads and beat time. Then ten o'clock struck, and then eleven, and then twelve, and at the last stroke of midnight everyone came out onto the terrace, and the king sent for the royal pyrotechnist. Let the fireworks begin, said the king and the royal pyrotechnist made a low bow and marched to the end of the garden. He had six attendants with him, each of whom carried a lighted torch at the end of a long pole. It was certainly a magnificent display. Whiz, whiz, went the Catherine wheel as she spun round and round. Boom, boom, went the Roman candle. 
Then the squibs danced all over the place and the Bengal lights made everything look scarlet. Goodbye, cried the fire balloon as he soared away, dropping tiny blue sparks. Bang, bang, answered the crackers, who were enjoying themselves immensely. Everyone was a great success except the remarkable rocket. He was so damp with crying that he could not go off at all. The best thing in him was the gunpowder and that was so wet with tears that it was of no use. All his poor relations, to whom he would never speak except with a sneer, shot up into the sky like wonderful golden flowers with blossoms of fire. Huzzah! Huzzah! cried the court, and the little princess laughed with pleasure. I suppose they are reserving me for some grand occasion, said the rocket. No doubt that is what it means and he looked more supercilious than ever. The next day, the workmen came to put everything tidy. This is evidently a deputation, said the rocket. I will receive them with becoming dignity. So he put his nose in the air and began to frown severely as if he were thinking about some very important subject. But they took no notice of him at all till they were just going away. Then one of them caught sight of him. Hello, he cried. What a bad rocket. And he threw him over the wall into the ditch. Bad rocket? Bad rocket? He said as he whirled through the air. Impossible. Grand rocket. That is what the man said. Bad and grand sound very much the same. Indeed, they often are the same. And he fell into the mud. It is not comfortable here, he remarked, but no doubt it is some fashionable watering place and they have sent me away to recruit my health. My nerves are certainly very much shattered and I require rest. Then a little frog with bright jeweled eyes and a green mottled coat swam up to him. A new arrival, I see, said the frog. Well, after all, there is nothing like mud. Give me rainy weather and a ditch, and I am quite happy. Do you think it'll be a wet afternoon? I am sure I hope so, but the sky is quite blue and cloudless. What a pity. Ahem, ahem, said the rocket, and he began to cough. What a delightful voice you have, cried the frog. Really, it is quite like a croak. And croaking is, of course, the most musical sound in the world. You will hear our glee club this evening. We sit in the old duck pond close by the farmer's house and as soon as the moon rises we begin. It is so entrancing that everybody lies awake to listen to us. In fact, it was only yesterday that I heard the farmer's wife say to her mother that she could not get a wink of sleep at night on account of us. <laughs> it is most gratifying to find oneself so popular. Ahem, ahem, said the rocket angrily. He was very much annoyed that he could not get a word in. A delightful voice, certainly, continued the frog. I hope you will come over to the duck pond. I am off to look for my daughters. I have six beautiful daughters and I am so afraid the pike may meet them. He is a perfect monster and would have no hesitation in breakfasting off them. Well, goodbye. I have enjoyed our conversation very much, I assure you. Conversation indeed, said the rocket. You have talked the whole time yourself. That is not conversation. Somebody must listen, answered the frog. And I like to do all the talking myself. It saves time and prevents arguments. But I like arguments, 
said the rocket. I hope not, said the frog complacently. Arguments are extremely vulgar, for everybody in good society holds exactly the same opinions. Goodbye a second time. I see my daughters in the distance. And the little frog swam away. You are a very irritating person, said the rocket, and very ill-bred. I hate people who talk about themselves, as you do, when one wants to talk about oneself, as I do. It is what I call selfishness, and selfishness is a most detestable thing, especially to anyone of my temperament, for I am well known for my sympathetic nature. In fact, you should take example by me. You could not possibly have a better model. Now that you have the chance, you had better avail yourself of it, for I am going back to court almost immediately. I am a great favourite at court. In fact, the prince and princess were married yesterday in my honour. Of course, you know nothing of these matters, for you are a provincial. There is no good talking to him, said a dragonfly, who was sitting on the top of a large brown bulrush. No good at all, for he has gone away. Well, that is his loss, not mine, answered the rocket. I am not going to stop talking to him merely because he pays no attention. I like hearing myself talk. It is one of my greatest pleasures. I often have long conversations all by myself, and I am so clever that sometimes I don't understand a single word of what I am saying. Then you should certainly lecture on philosophy, said the dragonfly and he spread a pair of lovely gauze wings and soared away into the sky. How very silly of him not to stay here, said the rocket. I am sure that he has not often got such a chance of improving his mind. However, I don't care a bit. Genius like mine is sure to be appreciated some day. And he sank down a little deeper into the mud. After some time, a large white duck swam up to him. She had yellow legs and webbed feet and was considered a great beauty on account of her waddle. Quack, 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 she said. What a curious shape you are. May I ask, were you born like that or is it the result of an accident? It is quite evident that you have always lived in the country, answered the rocket. Otherwise, you would know who I am. However, I excuse your ignorance. It would be unfair to expect other people to be as remarkable as oneself. You will no doubt be surprised to hear that I can fly up into the sky and come down in a shower of golden rain. I don't think much of that, said the duck, as I cannot see what use it is to anyone. Now, if you could plough the fields like the ox, or draw a cart like the horse, or look after the sheep like the collie dog, that would be something. My good creature, cried the rocket in a very haughty tone of voice, I see that you belong to the lower orders. A person of my position is never useful. We have certain accomplishments, and that is more than sufficient. I have no sympathy myself with industry of any kind, least of all with such industries as you seem to recommend. Indeed, I have always been of opinion that hard work is simply the refuge of people who have nothing whatever to do. Well, well said the duck, who was of a very peaceful disposition and never quarrelled with anyone. Everybody has different tastes. I hope, at any rate, that you are going to take up your residence here. Oh, dear, no, cried the rocket. 
I am merely a visitor. A distinguished visitor. The fact is, I find this place rather tedious. There is neither society here nor solitude. In fact, it is essentially suburban. I shall probably go back to court, for I know I am destined to make a sensation in the world. I had thoughts of entering public life once myself, remarked the duck. There are so many things that need reforming. Indeed, I took the chair at a meeting some time ago, and we passed resolutions condemning everything that we did not like. However, they did not seem to have much effect. Now I go in for domesticity and look after my family. I am made for public life, said the rocket, and so are all my relations, even the humblest of them. Whenever we appear, we excite great attention. I have not actually appeared myself, but when I do so, it will be a magnificent sight. As for domesticity, it ages one rapidly and distracts one's mind from higher things. Ah, the higher things of life, how fine they are, said the duck. And that reminds me how hungry I feel. And she swam away down the stream, saying, Quack, 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 come back, come back, screamed the rocket. I have a great deal to say to you. But the duck paid no attention to him. I am glad that she is gone, he said to himself. She has a decidedly middle-class mind. And he sank a little deeper still into the mud and began to think about the loneliness of genius. When suddenly, two little boys in white smocks came running down the bank with a kettle and some faggots. This must be the deputation, said the rocket, and he tried to look very dignified. Hello, cried one of the boys. Look at this old stick. I wonder how it came here. And he picked the rocket out of the ditch. Old stick, said the rocket. Impossible. Gold stick, that is what he said. Gold stick is very complimentary. In fact, he mistakes me for one of the court dignitaries. Let us put it into the fire, said the other boy. It'll help boil the kettle. So they piled the faggots together and put the rocket on top and lit the fire. This is magnificent, cried the rocket. They are going to let me off in broad daylight so that everyone can see me. We will go to sleep now, they said, and when we wake up, the kettle will be boiled. And they lay down in the grass and shut their eyes. The rocket was very damp, so we took a long time to burn. At last, however, the fire caught him. Now I am going off, he cried, and he made himself very stiff and straight. I know I shall go much higher than the stars, much higher than the moon, much higher than the sun. In fact, I shall go so high that fizz, fizz, fizz. And he went straight up into the air. Delightful, he cried. I shall go on like this forever. What a success I am. But nobody saw him. Then he began to feel a curious tingling sensation all over him. Now I am going to explode, he cried. I shall set the whole world on fire and make such a noise that nobody will talk about anything else for a whole year. And he certainly did explode. 
bang, 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 went the gunpowder. There was no doubt about it. But nobody heard him. Not even the two little boys, for they were sound asleep. Then all that was left of him was the stick. And this fell down on the back of a goose who was taking a walk by the side of the ditch. Good heavens, cried the goose. It is going to rain sticks. And she rushed into the water. I knew I should create a great sensation, gasped the rocket. And he went out. And so ends the not-so-remarkable rocket who fizzles out and dies in as much self-delusion as he has lived. I knew, he says, I was going to create a great sensation. It's about a rocket who's been brought to be set off at a festival celebrating the marriage of a young prince. He sees everything in terms of himself, but he's a wonderfully funny character in that he's so self-absorbed that he kind of is impervious to everything that's going on behind him. But just who is Wilde taking a swipe at in the rocket? One of the suggestions is that actually in the story, Wilde was parodying Whistler, the artist who was originally a friend of his, with whom he later had a falling out, because Whistler had created a painting called Nocturne in Black and Gold, The Falling Rocket. And critics had accused him of just throwing paint at a canvas and expecting the public to admire it. So there could be an echo of what Wilde saw as Whistler's idea of his own self-importance. That's Anne Markey from Trinity College, Dublin. But I think there are elements of Wilde himself in The Rocket because he talks in it about what a wonderful family he has. And there are echoes in that of what he wrote to Lord Alfred Douglas in the letter that's become known as De Profundis when he was imprisoned, when he talks about his parents and the wonderful legacy they had and how highly regarded they were. The Rocket talks in very measured, loquacious tones. And when W.B. Yeats was describing Wilde, he described Wilde's mode of speech in very similar terms. So I think there are elements of self-parody in this, that Wilde realised that people saw him as being pompous, self-absorbed, maybe recognised himself that he was pompous, maybe self-absorbed, and that he wrote this story to kind of send himself up. In The Remarkable Rocket, just like The Devoted Friend, there's no self-discovery and no redemption. The egotistical rocket goes out believing in his own greatness. I think of all the stories, The Remarkable Rocket is probably one of the most amusing. Merlin Holland is Wilde's grandson. It's a very different story from the others, and Oscar would hate me to say this, but if there is a moral in the other stories, it's evident. But there doesn't seem to be a moral in the story of The Remarkable Rocket. It's a parody of modern life. I'm sure there were people who would have seen themselves in Oscar's depiction of The Remarkable Rocket in London of the time. Is he poking fun at anyone in particular? I don't know. I don't think so. You say that it might have been at James Whistler. It's possible. I think one of the wonderful things about it is that it's just as applicable today as it was then. I'm made for public life, said the rocket. So are all my relations. 
my goodness, I mean, just think about <laughs> public political life today. There's an arrogance, I think, about the remarkable rocket, which Oscar is definitely, unquestionably poking fun at. I think he probably had a, an amalgam of a lot of different people in mind at the time, and I'm sure he came across them on a regular basis. But then, of course, writing about them in this form, nobody could take huge offence. He made people laugh. He had this notion that if you could get people to laugh along with you, you could deliver some very powerful messages under the radar almost. So his plays are quite subversive and quite critical of society as he saw it. But yet at the same time, they're hugely popular, hugely appealing and hugely funny. That's Eleanor Fitzsimons. She's a biographer of Wilde and the author of a new book on his life called Wilde's Women. He wasn't a great believer in doing good works, in going out and helping people. He really believed that everybody had to help themselves in a sense and that all you could do as a society was give people opportunities. So he was a really strong believer in education, which is understandable given his background. So he very strongly believed that there shouldn't be laws to curtail people. That's where the gender politics come in very strongly. I think he felt that women were ridiculously held back and that it would be almost impossible to make a go of your life as a woman, given the restrictions that were placed upon you in terms of education, in terms of opportunities and acceptance. He did hold a mirror up to society, but he firmly believed that it was perfectly within his rights to live his life exactly as he wanted to, and nobody had the right to interfere with him. But he also believed that it was everybody else's right as well. So at the same time Wilde was writing tales like these, and later The Young King and The Star Child, he was writing poetry, plays, and his brilliant study of a double life, his novel The Picture of Dorian Gray. We tend to compartmentalise Wilde, perhaps more than any other writer. Other critics talk about how there are these versions of Wilde, but these versions rarely speak to each other in the critical literature. And really it is a challenge to try to bring all these versions of Wilde together, to see Wilde as quite a subversive figure, but also very conservative in many ways. To see the, the moral Wilde existing alongside the subverter of morals. To see Wilde, the family man, as deeply connected to Wilde, the gay man. Jarlath Killeen, a researcher of the fairy tales of Oscar Wilde, thinks we need to see the fairy tales in tandem with Wilde's other work, like Dorian Gray, and his essays like The Critic as Artist and The Soul of Man under Socialism. The Soul of Man under Socialism is a sort of plea for a new socialist ethic as the response to poverty and social unrest in late Victorian Britain. In, in the late Victorian period, socialism meant a lot of different things to a lot of different people. There were Christian socialists, there were atheist socialists. I mean, Wilde was accused of being a sedan chair socialist. So everyone was talking about it. Everyone had their own version of it, and this was Wilde's intervention. This is Wilde's version, which is a kind of an anarchic socialism. He argued against philanthropy and altruism. Really what he was proposing was a kind of an anarchy where every man would come to a self-awareness. And when every man and woman came to this self-actualisation, then the need for laws would fall away. But he said, actually, what philanthropy and altruism do are to maintain that inequality between social classes and that they actually prolong poverty. And Markey. And I think if you read the stories in that light, particularly the happy prince who gives away everything he has, but at the end, nothing has changed in the city. What Wilde is saying is that, well, actually, you can be philanthropic, but it doesn't change anything. And the happy prince says, the poor always think that money will make them happy. But the greatest mystery is misery. 
So in a sense, the jolt there is that nothing has changed and that the sacrificial act has been wasted on these people. The poor in his stories are not nice people. They're selfish, they're rude, they're ignorant, and they don't notice when something good has been done for them. They don't notice that the happy prince is sacrificing himself for them. They don't notice the swallow. For example, the the poor playwright thinks that uh, when the happy prince gives him this money, now I've finally been recognised by society. He doesn't notice that there's been a kind of divine intervention. So some of the ideas that are explored in the stories crop up in the later works. Again, he pokes fun at society in The Devoted Friend when he talks about the baby ducks not realising how important it is to be able to walk on your head in society. He critiques Victorian conventions. He critiques Victorian complacencies in the stories. And he does the same thing in his society dramas in the four very successful plays. He creates characters like Lady Bracknell, who are like the remarkable rocket, who are so convinced of their own importance. He begins to create the kind of characters who people the later plays within the stories. They're working out of issues that interested Wilde over all of his adult life. Things like the purpose of altruism. What does it do in the end? What is the nature of friendship? What is involved in friendship, in loyalty? Is Christianity just another story or is it something that can actually guide us through life? Some of the other things that he looks at in the stories are the relationship between art and life. He does the same thing in the picture of Dorian Gray when you have the real man and the portrait that ages instead of the real man. So he looks at issues like friendship, loyalty, religion, spirituality, betrayal, generosity, selflessness, sacrifice. And he moves back to those issues and teases them out in other ways in the later works. So these are very much a part of his overall work. But what shaped Oscar Wilde? What was his life like at this time? It's a very interesting point in his life, really, after he gets married, because one of the strongest drivers he has in his life is to earn money and to make a living and to give his wife and family the kind of lifestyle that he feels they're entitled to. That's Eleanor Fitzsimons. By 1888, when The Happy Prince and Other Stories was published, he was already a bon vivant in London society, beloved for his wit and style, He had married Constance Lloyd, whose family came from Eli Place, just close to the Wilde's family home on Merrion Square in Dublin. When Oscar Wilde first met Constance, he was taken with her immediately, really. She, again, was a very attractive woman, very beautiful looking, very accomplished, a brilliant musician, extremely well read, again, a linguist. So she was immediately appealing to him, but also her background was quite similar to his. And Constance said of him that she felt that he could be himself with her, that he didn't have the same sort of affectation when he was with her and talking to her that he did with others. He always seemed to be putting on a little bit of a show. And for the first couple of years of their relationship, he was travelling a lot. So they didn't see much of each other, but they saw as much as they possibly could and they exchanged letters. And then, funnily enough, she was back in Dublin staying with her grandmother when he arrived in Dublin to lecture in the Gaiety Theatre and propose marriage to her. And she instantly accepted. They, they were very much in love. Constance was herself a children's writer. 
And by then the couple had two infant sons, Cyril and Vivian, and Wilde was editing a literary women's magazine. Well, my grandmother was, I think probably until about three or four years ago with the latest biography that's come out about her, was always considered as a little bit of the sort of Victorian wife trotting along behind her husband, um, badly treated and ultimately abandoned by Oscar for his young men. What has come out more recently is that she was very much of a... I would even say as much goes as far as to say that she was a feminist. Um, she was certainly uh, a representative of what was called at the time the new woman. And she was very much a, uh, an individual in her own right. She wrote stories herself. She was actually a published short story uh, for children writer six months before Oscar published The Happy Prince and Other Tales. Um, interestingly, it was a story about a little girl who goes to sleep in her bedroom and the wallpaper has stalks on it. And the wallpaper is, as was then, uh, very fashionable. It was of a Japanese origin. So at late at night, the child dreams that one of the stalks comes off the wallpaper and longs to go home. Um, and this is the basis of the story. And what is interesting is that it's not a million miles away from the swallow uh, wanting to go back to Egypt, although Constance's story has a happier ending, I have to say. Merlin Holland. It's interesting to read The Remarkable Rocket and Wilde's essay, The Critic as Artist, together. In the essay, you hear Gilbert say, egotism is not without its attractions. When people talk about others, they are usually dull. When they talk to us about themselves, they are nearly always interesting. Provided, he says, you can shut them up as easily and quickly as you can shut up a book when you were bored. In many ways, the rocket becomes like the art critic in the essay who is so deluded he thinks himself as important as the artist, just like the rocket and the prince. For Wild Stories composer Michael Gallen, the music inspired by the rocket became the sounds of the story. He's called it How to Go Off Like a Rocket. Um, I think this probably is the part of the piece that was most influenced by biographical reading on Oscar Wilde. I had, I had heard that he had written the piece with Whistler, the painter, in mind. They hadn't gotten on very well. I think that each one thought that the other was very pompous. And the story is about a rocket who thinks that he's too important to go off at any given carnival. And he keeps on waiting and waiting and waiting for the point where an event important enough for him will occur. And it doesn't happen and he ends up kind of going off with a whimper. It sort of was the most obvious musical dynamic to me of, of any of them in that I just really liked this idea of something that kept on building to a climax and then would not come to the climax, it would kind of explode, but in an unexpected way. I also had this sound in my head, which was a little bit like the Donegal fiddle playing style, that kind of very relentless, kind of energetic playing. So an awful lot of the scoring in the piece, a lot of the orchestration is extremely rhythmic, extremely energetic. And again, they all clash against each other. There are moments where it moves, it seems like it's gonna move into a kind of a very free tonality, and then it becomes very atonal very quickly. 
It was really exciting to write, I have to say. Probably as well because I wrote it off the back of writing Shelter, which is much more timbral, not very rhythmic, not very melodic. This one was a very exhilarating piece to write because I had all of these colliding lines in my head. I kind of, at that point, I had composed four of the movements and I think I was really beginning to hear orchestras in my head and as well because I spent so long outside the city on retreats writing the piece. It had become very, very prevalent in my mind. So it was really exhilarating to have all of these kind of cascading lines against one another and the pieces. There is a huge amount of comedy in my own writing of the piece as well. And the end, I think, you know, is something that I'd like to get a little bit of a laugh out of. Thank you. 
The music there from Michael Gallon's Wild Stories Suite, inspired by the remarkable Rocket. Performed and recorded by the RT Concert Orchestra and conducted by Gavin Maloney. So next time we will hear one of the most beautiful and sorrowful of Wilde's short stories, The Nightingale and the Rose, read for us by Lauren Coe. She said that she would dance with me if I brought her red roses, cried the young student. But in all my garden there is no red rose. From her nest in the home oak tree the nightingale heard him, and she looked out through the leaves and wondered. No red rose in all my garden, he cried, and his beautiful eyes filled with tears. And we'll hear the music created by Michael Gallen around this story. You can find out more about Oscar Wilde and the Wild Stories Project on the project website, wildstories.ie, and see how the animations created by visual artist Felicity Clear work with music. We've also added the text of each story to the website so you can read, listen and enjoy this wild journey. Our thanks to our commentators Merlin Holland, Eleanor Fitzsimons, Anne Markey and Jarlath Killeen. Wild Stories is an Athena Media production for RT Lyric FM made with the funding support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland and the TV licence fee. Tell us what you think about Oscar Wilde and Wild Stories via Twitter and Facebook on the Wild Stories social media accounts and use the hashtag Wild Stories. I'm Robert Sheehan. Thank you for listening. <laughs>